My wife was really troubled. She was very, very unhappy. She and her husband had been married for many, many years. But she was at her wit's end because she didn't know whether her husband loved her or not. So one day she went to her husband tearfully and said, You never, never tell me that you love me. Well, she was taken aback when her husband responded, I know that. Because she had hoped that perhaps he just didn't realize that he never told her he loved her, but, but that if she pointed that out, it would be different. But that he knew that he never told her he loved her? What could that mean? And so she very fearfully asked, Why do you never tell me you love me? And the husband responded, Because. Because I told you the day we got married I loved you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. You know, you may not readily admit it, but I will. It has been the experience often in my life and in the lives of others that I have traveled this path with that we are very quick to assume the role of this wife because we believe that God is like the husband. And when we believe that, we are unhappy. We are uncertain. We are troubled. In our minds, we fill in the gaps that we believe are left empty because God is silent or distant or neglectful. But whenever we live like we believe that, we show that we do not know our God because our God is always faithful. Our God is always loving. And God wants us to know for certain. He wants us to know for certain that he is loving, that he is faithful. He wants you and me to build our lives on this foundation, the certainty of his love and his faithfulness. And so if the Spirit of God will convince us this morning that our God is faithful and that our God is loving, and if you and I will live our lives and build our lives on the foundation of the faithfulness and the loving kindness of God, then great things will have been accomplished here this morning. And as we so often hope for, Sunday after Sunday, our world might just be changed through people who believe such things. So if you have your Bible open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God from Deuteronomy chapter 7, reading verses 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay To their face by destruction, he will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Let's pray together. Father, bless now your word. We need your spirit to teach us. We need your spirit to give us understanding. And most of all, Lord, we need your spirit to bring about transformation in our lives. It won't come Uh, because of us or who we are or what we do. It will only come, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. So transform us into people who believe in your faithfulness 
and your love to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. Last week when we looked at this very same passage, we were left in wonder and amazement at the mystery of why God should make us the people that he has made us to be. Why God should give us the identity that he has given to us. What kind of God is he? We left singing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Why should you and I be holy and set apart to the Lord? Why should we be chosen by God? Why should he set his affection on us? Why should we be the treasured possessions of God? Well, the answer, though it will never make sense to us philosophically, never makes sense theologically, though it will always be a mystery to us, the answer to why is that God is a faithful God and God is a loving God. That's why. Look in verse 8. But it was because the Lord loved you And kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God did what he did for his people because he promised he would. And God is always faithful to his promises. He swore, he kept the oath that he swore because it is the very uh, essence of God, the very nature of God to be faithful and true. Hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment with these people. And now in this moment, and in every moment leading up to this moment, God has been at work in his way, keeping that promise. Unlike the uncertain wife, Israel isn't left to to wonder. They are experiencing the love and the faithfulness of God. Do they know it? Do they see it? Are they building their lives on it? Look in verse 9. No, K-N-O-W, no, 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 understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. If God's people are going to make it in the world, If God's people are going to make it in the land that he is about to give to them, then they must trust in the faithfulness of their covenant God. You know, we have two copy machines next door. We are under contract with one of those machines, and so that contract comes with a maintenance agreement. And so the technician comes regularly to service the machine to make sure it has toner. If the machine breaks... We call him, and he comes and fixes it. He maintains that copier. The other copier next door is not under contract and therefore has no maintenance agreement. So guess what? Yeah, you know what. It isn't working. So uh, no one fixes it. No one checks on it. So it just sits there, unused, unnoticed, a very unhappy copier. Well, here is some good news. Are you ready for some good news? You ready for some good news? Here it is. The maintenance agreement on God's contracts, his covenants, his promises never run out. The maintenance agreement on God's contracts, his covenants, his promises, they never run out. Look in verse 9. It says God is keeping. God is maintaining his covenant right now, present tense. The verse doesn't say that God has kept his covenant for people in the past, though he has. 
The verse doesn't say that God will keep his covenant for some future people, though that is certainly true. He will do it. God wants these people to know that he is keeping covenant with them right now, watching over them, maintaining his covenant. He doesn't want them to wonder about that. He doesn't want them to worry about that. He wants them to build their lives and make their decisions based on the certainty of his faithfulness to his covenant. This word covenant appears more in the book of Deuteronomy than in any other book in the Bible. And the word covenant appears a lot in the Bible, in many of the books, because God is a covenant God. But it appears more in the book of Deuteronomy than anywhere else. Because God's covenant, they are God's ways of bringing order into the chaos of the world and bringing order to our lives, of giving us hope and giving us certainty. If God did not make and faithfully keep promises, then he would be a changing God, a a capricious God, as everything else in our life changes, as everyone else in our life changes. And you and I would only know chaos and confusion and uncertainty because people fail us. They do. Giants in our lives fall. Even if it's only by death, they will fail us. But God never will. And so he says to these people on this day, as they stand ready to enter into and begin life in the land, the promised land that he has given them, that that he acted on their behalf, that he delivered them from bondage, that he saw them through their wanderings in the desert, that he has brought them to the very edge of the promised land because of an oath, because of a promise that he made to their forefathers, and because of a covenant he made with them. And so what was that covenant? And why was that covenant so important? You know, we've talked a lot about our tendency to kind of sterilize and sanitize the Bible. You know, the scenes in the Bible, the settings, the people, we we sterilize, we sanitize uh, that life. And I don't know how you picture Abram and his life when God called him to leave his country. In that moment, effectively, God made Abram a, a wandering nomad. But I always like to picture it this way. You know, glistening, gleaming, white sand dunes in the desert. Here an oasis, there an oasis. An occasional stream in the desert, you know, bounded by lush, uh, grazing land. I like to think of Abram and Sarah on this extended camping trip. Taking care of their cattle by day. Sitting outside their tent at night sipping on a cool, refreshing drink with a little umbrella in it, you know. Gazing up at the stars, pleasant, peaceful. When they feel like it, they pack up and move on. That's a nice picture, isn't it? But That's not the reality of the world that Abram and Sarah lived in. Famine was the reality of that world. Famine so severe that Abram had to take his family and flee to Egypt just so they wouldn't starve. Violence was a reality of the world in which they lived. Local kings, we might think of them more as chieftains, were always fighting with one another, fighting for more land, fighting for more power. An alliance would be made between one set of kings, and together they would go and attack another alliance made up of another set of kings. That was life. And in one such attack, Abram's nephew, who was with him, was 
carried away, he and his family and all their belongings, by the attackers. And so Abram had to gather fighting men, and he had to go after those chieftains, and he had to rescue Lot and his family and bring him back. Theirs was not a world of peace and safety. It was a world of violence. There were no police to protect you. There were no laws to protect your private property, your banks to securely uh, hold your gold and your silver. And so for Abram and Sarah, it wasn't a peaceful, pleasant life of stargazing in the desert. It was a life of vulnerability. And it was a life of uncertainty. And they may have wondered at night, if this were the night, when some chieftain might come and attack them and carry them off with their cattle and their gold and their silver. It's a life of insecurity and danger. And on your own, by yourself, in the desert, you were always vulnerable. And so the only way to have any protection, the only way for you to have any sense of security as a nomad living in the open desert was to enter into a covenant or an alliance with a strong ally. And that's how the ancient world operated, through people making uh, alliances and covenants with each other. The ancient world referred to it as cutting a covenant, Cutting a covenant, and this is how it worked. Some sort of animal, goat, ram, heifer, would be taken, killed, and split from head to tail. And then the halves would be laid out, mirror image, and between them, a pathway was formed. The people entering into the covenant would stand at either end of that pathway that went between the parts that had been divided, And in making the covenant, they would change places. This one would come here, and this one would come here. And they would make and enter into a covenant with each other by passing through the parts. And the idea was this. I am entering a covenant with you. I am making promises to you. And if I fail to keep every promise I make, then you may do to me what was done to these animals. So it's very dramatic. But that's how they entered into covenant agreements with one another. So the covenant itself was a promise. But the purpose of the covenant was to to bring unity, to bring oneness. The two entering the covenant would now become one. And so when the two chieftains walked through the parts of the animals, it was the same as saying, your people are now my people. And as I have always protected my people in the past, now I'm going to protect your people as my own. This was covenant cutting in the ancient world, in the world of Abram and Sarah. This was the source of protection. This was the source of security. And therefore, the peace that comes along with those. So, imagine how Abram felt. Out in the desert, having just had to fight to rescue Lot, when God came to him and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your protection. I am your very great reward. Your provision. How must Abram have felt that same night when God took him outside? A night that might have ordinarily been filled with the worry or the dread of retaliation. And God says to Abram, look up to the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them all, so will your descendants be. That's what God said. God said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. How wonderful. The promises of God must have sounded in the ears of Abram. 
But Abram asks, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? In other words, Lord, how can I believe your promises? They sound great. They're really awesome sounding promises. But how do I know you're really going to follow through? Would God answer that question? And if God answered Abram's question, how would he answer it? Well, how Abram's heart must have begun to race when God answered him. Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. What? Could it be that God was going to cut a covenant with him? That God was going to be his ally? That he would belong to God and that God would belong to him? That God would protect him? That God would provide for him? Could it be? So, Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. And then, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And God said, Know for certain, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Abraham must have thought, my descendants, well, I'm going to have descendants. He was wondering now at 100 years old whether that would be true, but God promised. God keeps talking. They'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nations they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Abraham must have thought, I'm going to experience the protection of God, not just for tomorrow and the next day, but, but on into a long, full life. God promised. God keeps speaking. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Abraham must have thought, my family is going to continue for generations. My family is going to receive this land God promised. And then God must did what must have seemed absolutely unbelievable to Abram. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch passed between the pieces. You mean, God didn't ask Abram to stand at one end of the path between the parts? God, the one who needed nothing? God, the one who is absolutely complete in and of himself? He is the one in the form of a smoking fire pot that passed between the parts. What kind of God must he be? What kind of God would bind himself by covenant? to one who could offer him nothing in return. What kind of God? A good God? You think so? A gracious God? A God of mercy and compassion? A God who freely gave to Abram what he most needed in that vulnerable place, a covenant partner to go through life with, a covenant partner to be one with and close relationship with. God says to him, no, for certain, The very first words of the covenant. Know for certain, have no doubt. Abram, you can build your life on this fact. I am God and I am faithful. So as long as Abraham continues to believe God, as long as he continues to trust that God meant what he said when he entered into the covenant with him, then his life will be free of fear, free of worry, free of insecurity, free of rash actions, because he knows that his life is held by his covenant God. I, Abraham, Abraham, am your shield, your very great reward. 
This is who God is by his own choice. And so let's come back now to the plains of Moab, to Moses and to the people who are standing at the edge of the promised land. Abram's descendants, who are now, because of the faithfulness of God, uh, number in the multiple millions, more than the stars of the sky. The people are there only because God keeps his covenant. 400 years brought them out of slavery. He promised to. When they left the land of Egypt, they did come with great treasure because God promised they would. And now they are about to enter the promised land because God promised it to them. God is faithful right now. They are experiencing right now, in real time, and in real space, that God is always keeping covenant with his people. What, 15, 20 generations into the thousand generations that he promised? What should that mean? for the way they live their lives in the land that God gives to them. God doesn't forget his promises. God doesn't fail in his promises. God is not like the silent, inattentive husband who said, I told you I loved you on the day we got married. I'll let you know if I change my mind. He doesn't make promises and forget about them or never bring them up again. He's always at work keeping his covenant. And so in faith, they say to themselves, God is my shield right now. In faith, they say, God is my reward right now. And they demonstrate that faith by looking to God to provide what they most need. And see, that's the reason for these prohibitions that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, back up in verse 2. You know, the second part of it. God commands them. When they enter the promised land, and when they find other nations there, God says this, don't make a treaty with them. But how tempting, how tempting that would be. These people, like you and I, couldn't see God. But they could see those mighty nations around them who were much bigger and much stronger than they were. How easy it would be, how sensible of them to walk through the parts with the chieftains of those nations, to make a covenant with them, to find protection through them, to humbly say, you are bigger than we are, you are stronger than we are. Will you please make a covenant with us to protect us? That's the sensible thing to do, isn't it? But it isn't the faith-filled thing to do. Why would you have to when you are in a covenant relationship with God? It's why God says to them, don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. How easy that would be. Well, let's just make a, a political alliance by marrying off our children, merging our families, because we'll find peace and protection that way because no king is going to kill his son-in-law. No king is going to kill the father of his son-in-law or the family of his son-in-law. Let's make a covenant in this way. Might be very tempting. Might seem very practical. But it's not at all faith-filled. Why would you want to when you're in a covenant relationship with God? When he says, I am your shield, your very great reward, What do you have to have? What do you have to have to feel secure and protected right now in our world? What do you have to have in your life to feel truly provided for? And where are you going to get what you need to find both? The protection, the security, the provision, the peace that comes with those? We all need to really answer that question, really. We need to answer those questions. Because if we believe 
that the answer is something God cannot or will not provide, then you know what we're going to do? You know what we're going to do. You know what you and I do. We're going to enter into and make treaties with this world. Alliances with the world. And that's what we do because we believe that's what we have to do. If we are going to get what we require, we will gladly walk through the parts. We will gladly walk through the parts in exchange for the promise of getting what we need in return. We will become one with the people of the world. We will become one with the things of the world to get what we want and what we crave. And it will be simple for us to do because we see those things around us. We see those people around us. You know, you and I can can look at a bank account, can't we? And we can watch it fill up. Who cares what we had to do? What compromises we had to make to, to fill it up? And who cares what or who we have to neglect? What justifications we have to make to keep that account full so that we feel secure? We see people around us. Hear their words. Feel their hugs. How easy to make a treaty with them. And who cares what compromises we have to make to keep them around? And who cares what compromises we have to make to create of ourselves the person they need us to be so that they won't abandon us? After all, we see them. We can't see God. We can't audibly hear his words. We know that God says in his word that he rejoices over us with singing. Only we can't hear that song. We can't physically feel his hug around uh, our neck or, or his pat on our back. We don't trust, so we make treaties. And so you and I have to examine our lives and say, what treaties? What treaties am I making with this world? Walking through the parts. Why am I making treaties with this world? Because every time we make one, we show that we are not believing what is true about God. And we are proven to be deceived in our thinking that someone else or something else can provide what God can't because they're bigger, because they're stronger. But I'm telling you, they will fail. Giants will fall. I'll remind you of what Moses reminded the people on the plains of Moab. The covenant of God who said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. I wonder if we could say that together, but fill in the blank. Take Abram's name out and and put our name in. Like, do not be afraid, Craig. I am your shield, your very great reward. Can you do that? Put in your own name. You know what? We need to hear this. We need to hear it. Say it out loud. So y'all say it with me. You ready? Here we go. Do not be afraid, Craig. I am your shield. Your very great reward. Let's do that one more time. You need to hear yourself saying that and God saying it to you. Here we go. Do not be afraid, Craig. I am your shield. Your very great reward. You know why you can insert your name there? You know why you can claim that promise for your own life? This is why. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 
Every promise that God has ever made finds its completion, finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Christ, you are the fulfillment of every promise of God. Amen. Right? Christ, you are the fulfillment of every promise of God. Amen. Amen. See, God is faithful. And we trace his faithfulness to keep his covenant in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and through Deuteronomy and through the Old Testament and through the time of the prophets. God isn't silent. He doesn't leave us to wonder about his love or his faithfulness or to fill in the blanks. It's there for us to see and experience throughout time. And we trace the faithfulness of God right up to the time that Jesus picked up the cup at the Last Supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed, poured out for you. It's no longer the blood of animals used to cut the covenant, but the blood of the Son of God himself. Look at Jesus. Why would you ever doubt his faithfulness? His love, his protection, his provision. Look at Jesus. Why would you ever make a treaty with anything or anyone else in this world? Are the thousand generations up? Are they? No, they're not. How then should you and I live our lives? In fear? In doubt? No. In trust? In confidence? In certainty that God is maintaining? God is keeping his, keeping his covenant And he is keeping you and he's keeping me and he is our shield and he is our reward. And so we build our lives on the faithfulness and the loving kindness of God demonstrated to us so clearly and so faithfully in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make us the people that we will be when we live our lives with the foundation of your loving kindness and your faithfulness beneath us. We will think differently, Lord, when we remember you're faithful and that you're loving. Lord, we will act differently when we remember that you are faithful and loving. Father, we won't take into our own hands to accomplish for ourselves that which we won't be very good at doing anyway because we trust that you are faithful and that you are loving and that you are maintaining and keeping the covenant you have made with us. The new covenant, Lord, of life, abundant life, through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord Jesus, keep our eyes fixed on you. We don't have to doubt, we don't have to wonder if you love us, if you care about us, if you are keeping us. All we have to do is to to go to that room and sit around the table and and listen to you say, this is my blood, new covenant, poured out for you. We just have to go to the cross and, and, and see how you followed through with your promise by giving your life on the cross for us. Could we ever doubt your loving kindness or your faithfulness to us? Keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord. It's the only way we will be the people that you call us to be and live as you call us to live and truly change the world because we don't do it through our strength or through our power, but because we depend on the faithfulness and the loving kindness of our unchanging God. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.